One thing we all have in common here, we were all new once. Part of our mission at Church on Bayshore is for everyone to belong to God's family. The heart of our ministry is to make sure that everyone that comes on campus knows that they matter to God and they matter to us. I um, love to serve because I'm following the example of Jesus. I serve because when I asked Christ into my life 29 years ago, God laid on my heart to give to others as Christ gives to us. We've seen a ton of uh, new families come in and uh, we're there to greet them initially when they come in and uh, welcome them. And uh, it's kind of spread out, you know, they're, they're coming and they're bringing some of their friends and, and uh, you know, to have this first, uh, first meeting with someone with a smile and a grin and, and to help you, to show you where to go, uh, that's an important thing. We moved here in December of last year and we knew nobody and we loved that we felt very welcomed and we wanted to jump in and get connected with other people as soon as possible. I feel like God has just done huge things for our family since arriving and that started with our kids and the kids ministry here is just so fantastic and we just thought we have to jump in and start serving in some way just because we have been so blessed by the church here. As a military family, we have an opportunity to move around a lot of different places, and it is very important because church can be scary and intimidating on your first service. And I believe that it's important to have a team that welcomes you from sign-in to the sanctuary and that they feel connected to a church family because leaving an impression on them will impact. So coming into the church, uh, I came here invited by a friend when Noah was deployed and I felt a huge community wrapped around me and my our two girls and it just I can never I will never be able to forget that day and it was awesome for, for me to be able to know while I was deployed that we actually had a church family that was connecting with her and was checking up on her rather than me having to worry about that all the time while I'm over there. I feel like God has used me in that role. Um, a lot of different people come into church and it's our job to be the kindness of God, to show the kindness of God to other people. Uh, we love that we get to greet people um, every Sunday. We get to see beautiful faces walking into the church that has welcomed us and it's just a fantastic feeling um, to be able to help the, the new members um, kind of find their way because not too long ago we were new and we needed the same type of help. I love getting to see folks, both regular attendees and new folks each Sunday as they head into church. It's such a joy to greet them and see smiles on their faces and share the love of Christ with them. When you come into a big church, a lot of times you can just feel like you're gonna slide through the cracks. And for us, it felt so good to not feel like we were falling through the cracks. And um, we love giving that opportunity to anybody else that's gonna come in. I would encourage you guys to join our team. You will feel refreshed and encouraged by serving others in the morning um, and welcoming new families to our church. I am so thankful for our Connect and First Impressions team who so faithfully serve on Sundays and Wednesdays to welcome people to our campus and most importantly, to help each person connect to the life of our church. 
On Sunday, September 26th, we'll be having a training meeting for all of our current members, but also invite all of those in the church family who are interested in being part of our team to join us after worship gatherings for this meeting so that we can ensure everyone who joins us on campus would find a place to belong here at Church on Bayshore. Well, the church is a family. We're not a corporation. We are a family. And whenever you have people over to your house who isn't family or aren't super close to you, uh, you open the door for them and you help them uh, understand where they need to go and... uh, unless you're a terrible host. Uh, And so every Sunday, we have people who visit uh, our family, and what an opportunity we have to help uh, people get connected into the life of this family. And our Connect team not only helps people to feel welcomed and valued when they're here, uh, but indeed wants people to find that they have a place. And so uh, I would encourage you, uh, if you're not already serving uh, in our children's ministry or serving our student ministry on our worship and tech team, to get involved uh, in uh, this Connect team and attend that training session that's coming up in two weeks. It is amazing to see uh, how just someone coming on a Sunday morning and being welcomed, um, connecting, uh, leads to lives changing. And so you can play a part in that. And, you know, if you're here with us today visiting, we hope you felt uh, welcomed and valued as you uh, came onto campus this morning. And we do want to know who you are. Uh, You can text the word CONNECT to the number that is on the screen, and one of our team members will follow up with you this week. And we'd be happy to answer any questions that you might have and help you learn how you can get involved in the life of our church. And if you're watching with us online, we're so glad to have you with us. And uh, we'd love to know you as well. Well, you can certainly text that word uh, to the number you see on the screen, and we will follow up with you as well. And, you know, as you get plugged in the life of our church, I hope that something you find out and you hear often is that our desire is not just to grow our church, but it's to play a part in building the kingdom of God. And that is uh, one of the reasons or the reason that we uh, have been so heavily involved in Anchor Church in Freeport, which has recently launched. Anchor Church in Freeport uh, is pastored by Sean Walker, and we uh, sent, uh, we had him come and do a residency, and then we sent with him uh, 30-something members of our church who have committed to at least a year uh, of being with Anchor Church, if not more. And we as a church have committed financially over $100,000 to helping them getting started. And uh, we rejoice that this past Sunday, last week, they had their first baptisms as a church family. You can see some pictures of those, but <laughs> praise God uh, for that. And we get to be a part of what God is doing. And we're so thankful for the the group of churches that we're connected with of like uh, faith and doctrine and uh, someone who is a huge part in just kind of what God is doing through uh, Southern Baptist churches in this region is Lewis Miller. Lewis Miller is a a friend of mine, a mentor of mine, and he preaches here about once a year uh, just because I feel like uh, our church needs to hear from him. And we are just so grateful that he is going to be here with us next Sunday as we continue our He is Greater Than Fear series. So uh, you will not want to miss uh, that next Sunday. But today uh, I continue in our series, He is Greater Than Fear, and we are talking about Jesus sending out the first disciples. He sent them out. And we'll be looking at Mark chapter 6, verse 7 through 13. At this point in Mark's gospel, 
the role that the disciples play changes. They had been somewhat in the background uh, since they were called to follow Jesus, but now they kind of move into a supporting role. So we know from Mark's gospel that he sends out at least the 12 to do ministry. And from their example, we can learn how we too can step off of the bench and onto the field when it comes to living our life for Christ and living on mission or something that we call living sent. Now, when I talk to people about living on mission, living sent, I often hear a lot of fear about what might happen if they really live for Jesus. Like if they really sought to build relationships, share the gospel, the message of Christ, and kind of sacrifice for that. Often people have said they, they, they don't know that they would know what to do. Like if they get conversations with people, they don't know that they would know what to say. They don't really know how to build those kind of relationships. They don't know how to treat people, you know, like value them, but then ever really get to the point of being intentional in conversation. I've also heard people say that they're worried that they would experience opposition or persecution if they really begin to live more for Christ in the workplace and in the community and school and wherever it might be. Often people just are afraid, afraid that if they, um, you know, they live for Christ, it's FOMO, right? Like they're afraid they're going to miss out if they really devote their time and money and life to Christ. And what we're going to learn in this passage today is how the disciples were confident to live for Christ, how the disciples were confident to go and proclaim the hope of Jesus. And it serves as a model for us. And ultimately, it show, should show us why we should not have fear in living this way. So Mark chapter 6, verse 7 through 13. It says, he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. If any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. If you pray with me. Lord, help us to hear from you. God, even as I think about what I plan to say, Lord, I'm undecided on if I should say some things or not. And so I pray for your spirit to guide me in that. And Lord, I just pray that we would receive what comes from your word with open hearts and open hands and open feet as people who want to honor you with our lives. I pray that if there's somebody here that doesn't trust you, that doesn't know you, Lord, just help them to see you today by the power of your spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are several things that I would like us to see that take place in this text that help us to understand why the disciples were sent out, why they were confident, and why they went out, and things that ultimately we can learn from. The first of those things is that they were not on their own. They were not on their own. Now, going out, living in a world of people who do not believe what you believe, 
and trying to convince them the reality of what you believe and the reality of eternity and the consequences on their life with the resistance that might come from those people, with the possible opposition that might come from those people, that's kind of scary. It's kind of scary to say, I'm gonna go out and do that on my own. That's not what you're called to. And that's not what the disciples were called to. They were not on their own. And we are not on our own. You see, they spent time with Jesus. Leading up into Jesus, sending them out, the disciples had been spending time with Jesus. They were learning from Jesus. They were seeing his power. They were seeing his character. They were hearing his teaching. And then he gave them instructions in how to go out. Specific instructions in how to go out. Not necessarily exhaustive instructions, not covering every detail, but specific enough to have direction to go out and do what he'd called them to do. When we live on mission for Jesus, it is fueled by spending time with Jesus. And Jesus gives us instructions on how to live for him. We are not on our own. But not only is it that they spent time with Jesus, this shows us they were not on their own, but they also were sent out two by two. They were not sent out alone, they were sent out two by two. In the Old Testament and then leading into the culture of Jesus' day, two witnesses had to confirm any word. So if you were accusing someone of something in court and you were the only one saying that, it did not hold up in court. Anything had to be substantiated by more than one witness. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, it gives us this, this principle that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. If one falls, one will lift his fellow up. But if one falls alone, woe to him who doesn't have someone to lift him up. And if you are by yourself, how can you keep warm? But if two lie together, you can keep warm. And a man might prevail against one who is alone, but two will withstand him and a threefold cord could not quickly be broken. This was a concept that was just deeply embedded in the culture in which Jesus lived. And this was how Jesus sent out his disciples, not as a solo act, but together. This is a huge part of Christianity that I often think is overlooked. We are not supposed to be out on our own. We are supposed to be together. It's really not the most effective method of evangelism in most cultures anymore, but back in the days of visitation where people went out and they knocked on doors, you went out two by two. You did not go out on your own, and often you would make sure that if it was two guys going out, you took a woman with you because if you knocked on the door of a woman and said, hey, we want to come in your house and talk to you about Jesus, they were freaked out. And so, you know, this is just common sense here that was deeply embedded in their culture that I think we often forget when we think about what it means to live for Jesus. When missionaries go out overseas, typically they're going out with their spouse or they're paired up in groups of people that go out. Our groups, we really don't want our groups to be led by one person or even one couple. We want, you know, multiple leaders to start a new group. I, at my previous church, we had 
home groups, and that was really a requirement. If somebody wanted to lead a new group, you needed to have somebody with you, mostly because if you had a home group and somebody came to visit your home group and it was just you sitting on the couch petting your cat, it was creepy, right? And so, you know, it just practically made sense. If you don't find that's creepy, then Never mind. Um, so, you know, it, it just practically made sense for there to be multiple people there for new people, and it gave you strength, and it gave you support, so you on, on your own trying to lead people, and that's, that's important here, and I would just say in life, we're not called to do it alone. We're called to have community. We should always say, hey, I want other believers strengthening me in this life I'm living for Jesus, and so they were not on their own. They spent time with Jesus and they were sent out two by two. The second thing, and I'll, I'll talk about this one quickly, is they had authority. Jesus gave them authority over the unclean spirits as he sends them out. Now, you need to understand that the phrase sent out, apostello, is often used, it's a phrase that we use for someone who was given a mission. So they're out on an authorized mission. And it's where we get the word apostle, sent ones. These are people who are on a mission from authority they've been given, derived authority. It's not their own authority, it's authority they've been given. And we really get into a bad spot when we begin to try to live the life Christ has called us to on our own authority, in our own power. That's not what he's asked us to do. He's given us authority. And it says he's given us authority over unclean spirits. For them, this would be the thing that they feared the most as they went out to do, you know, press against the spiritual darkness and proclaim the gospel is the unclean spirits. And he says, I've given you authority over that. As a believer, we're called to live on mission and we have the authority of Jesus. Now, since that is derived authority, we need to constantly say, what does he want for us? How does he want us to do this as best we know? And in fact, I would say that some of you are trying to live a life for Christ without actually consulting Christ. And that's your problem. That's your challenge, is you forget the authority I'm given to live this life doesn't come from within. I don't need to constantly do soul searching. I need to constantly do Bible searching. And I need to constantly be around others who are helping me see how the Bible applies. And that's what strengthens me to live with the authority that I've been given by Christ. The third thing that we should see here is that they embraced simplicity. They embraced simplicity. Verse 8 says, He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, and then no bread, and no bag, and no money in their belt. So they're wearing the belts, but no money in them. So I made fun of my friend the other day for wearing a fanny pack because those things are coming back. He should have just said, I'm just being, I'm just doing what Jesus said, wearing the fanny pack. Uh, but they didn't have any money in their fanny pack and wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Now, this is probably a good point to say that what we are reading is descriptive, not prescriptive. So a lot of the Bible is descriptive, not prescriptive. So what that means is we learn from what happened, but we don't necessarily apply it all the exact same way we're reading it. In fact, a lot of what we read in the Bible doesn't translate to the culture we're in. It doesn't mean the truths and the principles aren't applicable today, but it means the exact way they did it is not applicable today. 
So, so we wouldn't necessarily be doing the same things they're doing when we do ministry, going into a town, looking for a house, not taking bread or bags or whatever it may be. However, we do need to understand what Jesus is trying to say to them. He's telling them, don't have excess. This instruction now doesn't mean that we're never to have possessions. And there are those who have taken this and said, basically, servants of God should not have any possessions. Um, and they just didn't read other places in the Bible, apparently, because Jesus and the crew, they don't always follow that. In fact, in Luke chapter 22, verse 35 and 36, listen to what Jesus says as he sends the disciples out. When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And so here he's saying, hey, it's different this time. That was unique when I sent you out, but I provided for you, so how much more will I provide for you when you actually have some of these things? And if we look at the life of the disciples, they collected money for the mission of Jesus. A lot of you know, younger believers don't think we have to give money to the mission of Jesus, but that's just not the biblical model. They collected money. In fact, Judas was the money keeper, and that was a part of what got him in trouble. That's why pastors don't touch money. And so at, at the same time, I, I, just, I just want this to be clear here, that number one is this isn't saying you can't have possessions as a follower of Jesus. However, don't allow that to cause you to miss the simplicity of the lives of Christians in the Bible and the lives of Christians over history who have been effective for the gospel. Today, probably in our context, the biggest obstacle to the believers in Jesus Christ being effective for the mission of God is materialism is our desire to have comfort and convenience and more and to be obsessed with those things and for our conditions in following Christ to be those things and for it not to cause, allow us or enable us to have open hands about whatever Jesus might call us to do. And it is a distraction it is a distraction from living for Jesus. And I would say that often when people look at Christians, and, and historically the Christians have been most effective for the gospel, how they are perceived by their culture, look at the book of Acts, is as generous people. And we might be perceived as people who have a lot and give some, but not as generous people. And it's because we're distracted by these things. And I'm not gonna tell you specifically where the line is for you, unless we're very close, I might have more questions for you about this. But come on, we know that this is a distraction in our culture. And you might be thinking, well, I'm not rich. Well, all, almost all of us in this room are richer than 90 to 95% of the world. So we are. And we have just deceived ourselves because we're kind of all in it together. I, I had a friend at my last church who was a very generous man. He was about my age, he had kids, but you know, he, he, had done, he had done well or was doing well and is doing well, and he was just very generous. He gave generously to the church as far as I knew. He gave generously to some other things. He, I, I know he had a house that he let somebody, it was a second house, and he let somebody who needed it live there for free until they you know, kind of got where they needed to be. He was just that kind of generous guy, and then he rolls in one day 
with a really baller car. And we were friends, and I just said to them, I, I prayed about it, and I said, hey, I'm only gonna say this to you one time because I just felt like I should say this to you. But I would say that up until this point, people who knew you knew, wow, he is generous. And now people think, wow, he has nice things and he might be generous. And I think it's very easy to say the pastor, you know, shouldn't be driving. We'll just use an extreme example because you guys, a lot of you have nice cars, so I, I need to be careful here. Uh, pastor shouldn't be driving a Ferrari, right? Like, because he's the pastor. Because that's God's money that pays him, right? I just want you to understand, it's God's money that pays everyone. And God doesn't just care about what we do with 10%, he cares about what we do with 100%. And we really need to think about this because not only does God care, but what is the message we are sending about our lives? And Jesus was very concerned with these disciples going out and he wanted them to not have excess and he wanted them to be able to connect with the people and depend on the people for hospitality and that gave them an opportunity to do that. Now, I also say, because it's not just about materialism and money, even though don't say, oh, okay, it's not just about money. I don't have to worry about money. It's very much about money. But it's also about, in our culture, busyness. We are distracted from the mission of God because we fill our calendar with so many other things. I, I in this church family, am just so, the wor worried is not the right word, so I'll say concerned because that's a Christian way of saying worried because we're not supposed to worry. But I am concerned for how many of our young families like fill our kids' calendars with so much stuff besides the word. We max them out. The, the biblical community is not a priority and we think they're just gonna just, they, we just are not intentional. And I'm just, I know that many of you are gonna come to me or whoever in 10 years and be like, I don't understand why my kids don't care about Jesus and church, and it's because you didn't prioritize it. Never expect them to prioritize what you marginalize. And look, I'm not against, I think our kids should be exhausted sometimes because otherwise they get in trouble. But Jesus has gotta be the center. And, and, and I'm not saying you have to be here every Sunday. I'm not here every Sunday. I'm not gonna be here next Sunday, okay? Lewis Miller's preaching. I'm not saying you gotta be here every Sunday, but I'm saying that it's gotta be like tethered. You gotta be tethered to the church and tethered to the word and living out what Jesus has called us to do and not be distracted. And then, man, I'm spending way much more time than I wanna do this, but like the American church, like the reason, and, and some of those people who, who aren't very tethered to the local church have all these problems with the American church, it's just reflective of all of us, right? Like it's just the church, it's just the people of the church. And yet most of our churches, we have all these facilities and personnel and programs and we're not focused on the mission of Jesus like God has called us to. And then as leaders, you have this tension because if you're just being real with you, like you know that if you cut programs and cut facilities and cut personnel so that you could be more focused on mission, people are like, well, we're going somewhere where they got more personnel and programs and facilities. And they won't say it like that. They'll just be like, I think the Lord's calling me to a different season of life, right? Like, 
You want to go where it's more comfortable. And so the reason the American church is wrestling with this tension today is because believers, this is where we're at. And we're so distracted. But listen to what Paul tells Timothy as he's instructing him about the church. Listen to what he says, 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's just this simplicity. Hey, love Jesus, teach others, and teach others to love Jesus. To teach others to love Jesus. That's really ministry. And he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuit since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. He's saying, think about a soldier. And when they're on mission, the mission is what matters. And we even try to do that when our guys are deployed. You know, we're, that's the focus, the mission. Let's eliminate distractions. Let's focus on it. He's saying, as believers, that's how we live our lives. We can't be entangled in these things that distract us from the primary purpose that God leaves us on earth is to make an impact for eternity. And so as they go out, they're in these positions to accept hospitality, and they accepted hospitality. That's number four. Verse 10 says, he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Now, in their day, the culture guaranteed that traveling teachers would receive hospitality. It was like a pride of your town that if some traveling minister rolled into town and, you know, Jewish rabbi, their, their people, that you would take care of them. And, and that actually was taken advantage of a lot of times by pastors. I mean, you know, that's crazy that a pastor would take advantage of people, but it happens, all right? Some places, and always keep me in check so that I'm not doing that, but they would. And Jesus is saying, hey, you don't need to be like these rabbis and these um, other guys. Like, you just need to be content. Like, if, if you have a place, go there and stay there until you need to go. So he's saying, like, don't always be looking for upgrades, right? Like, be content with what you're provided with. Last week, I was at the Florida uh, football game for clarity, not Florida State who loses Division II schools, but the Florida Gators. And sorry, I had to, well, I didn't have to say that, but I wanted to say that. And so I was at the Florida Gator football game and I bought tickets to three games. They have like these three game packages and they're not great seats. Like airplane, if there's a flyover, like you can feel the wind of the airplane, you know, like. But uh, the person we were going with last week said, hey, um, or they wanted to go with us. They said, hey, sell your tickets. I bought us four tickets. And they were like, great seats. And so I was excited about that. And then uh, like the day before the game, I get a text from a friend who has like the seats where they feed you and all that stuff. And I'm like, oh man, looking at my phone. I'm like, okay, so this person, they bought us seats, great seats. I sold my seats, but now I'm being offered better seats. <laughs> And he's like, I only have two. So I'd like have to ditch the guy, you know, who bought us the, and take my son. And I was like, I can't do it. And I think, I think that's how a lot of us like live our lives. It's just like, we're always just looking for what's better, what's next, what the better position is, what the better job is, what the better person, friend is, uh, you know, and you could take that where it may go. And Jesus is telling them like, hey, just kind of bloom where you're planted, and just be faithful where you are. And if you move, you're not moving for success or for comfort or for convenience. You're moving because that's where you're going to be more effective for God. And I just say this to you because a lot of you are faced with career decisions all the times and, you know, ministry decisions, all this stuff. Like, what should determine your move 
whether it's in town, it's to another town, it's in church, to another, it's like, where am I gonna be most effective for God? And, and if this isn't clearly gonna help me be more effective for God, then maybe I'll just stay planted until God clearly releases me from where I am. And I think like we need to watch that. Okay, number five, they, prepared, they were prepared for rejection. Verse 11, and if any place will not receive you and when they will not listen to you when you leave, Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So I, I mean this like in love. I don't know I'm smirking because I really do. We are very fragile as a society. Okay, so I'm, I'm 39. I graduated high school in 2000. Um, so that makes me like a very old millennial. Millennials, we're pretty fragile. I can say that because I am one. Um, but guess what? We learned that fragility from someone. So older generations, you're kind of fragile too. There's just, we live in a fragile world. And Christianity has said, okay, since people are so fragile, we have to feed them these lies that if they follow Jesus, there's not gonna be any problems. That's not Jesus, Jesus didn't say that. He doesn't say that to us. And when he sends his disciples out, he's preparing them for rejection. He's preparing them for failure. And one thing I say, I learned it from someone, is that disappointment stems from expectations. Like, if you go to a restaurant and all your friends have said, this restaurant is so good. It's, it's a recipe for disaster because you're expecting that restaurant to be so good. And if they have an off night or, a, or an average night, it's just not as good. Or, or, but if you go to a little shack, you know, because they're the only one without a weight and the service is good and the food is good because your expectations were low, I mean, it, it's great. I mean, honestly, I feel like seriously, this is one of the great problems in marriage is that people have these unrealistic expectations of their spouse that they'll never meet. And so they're always disappointed with their spouse. That's why when I proposed to Christy, I said, hey, Christy, um, I'm never gonna be anything you ever hoped that I would be, but will you marry me anyway? And she said, yes. So, so not really, but um, in ministry, I would just tell you, you're gonna experience this. Like if you're here and you left your church because people were mean, and you're like, they're not gonna be mean here. Not those people in the video, those are nice people. But not everyone here is nice. Somebody's gonna be mean to you at some point because there's sinners here. If you're doing ministry, if you're serving the Connect team, you're leading in this church, you're serving in our center of hope, you're gonna meet 100 people. You're out in the community investing in people. You're gonna meet 100 people. 10 are gonna give a flip about what you have to say. The other 90 won't. And one of those 10 will actually stick with it for some time. That's one out of 100. But that person's worth it. Jesus leaves the 99 for the one. And ministry on earth is about ministering to the 100 for the one. I'm just preparing you. Listen, Jesus, Jesus, what he said was way harsher than what I'm saying. Listen to what he says. Matthew 10, 16 through 25, he gives instructions. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. 
And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child. And the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And this happened. And Jesus says, prepare for it. And Jesus you know, says, shake the dust off your feet. Jews shook the dust off their feet when they returned from a Gentile territory so they wouldn't defile the, you know, symbolically the Jewish land. And he says, do that when you leave these Jewish cities. This conveys the seriousness of the rejection of the gospel. R. Allen Cole says, to preach the gospel is therefore always a joyous task, but never a task to be entered upon lightheartedly in view of the eternal issues with which such teaching is concerned. In these Jewish towns, there's rejection of the Messiah. It's very clear, Matthew 10, 5 and 6, as Jesus sent them out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In Romans, when Paul's explaining the gospel, he says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And, and so the gospel went to the Jews first. And in verse 11, the King James Version translates this and says, you know, that there, uh, there's a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's actually not in any of the manuscripts, but it was taken from the gospel of Matthew and put in the King James Version and Mark as well. But it is true in Matthew 10, 15, Jesus says, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. What he's saying is he's saying these people need to hear the gospel because judgment is coming upon them for rejecting the gospel. And so Mark says in verse 12, they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. The last thing I would say here is they did the work of the one who sent them. Jesus called them to know him for eternity and therefore to serve him on earth. He said, I will make you fishers of men, and now they were living that out. In Matthew's gospel, it says that they were proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the same message of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they were proclaiming this to people who were so familiar with God, but they needed to hear, they needed to repent. And I would say, that is not unlike our setting today, where almost everyone we will meet in Niceville and in this region is familiar with God, is familiar with Jesus, is familiar with the Bible, perhaps they've never understood their need for repentance and trust in him for righteousness. And, and the script says, scripture says they were healing people. They were healing people. They were anointing them with oil, just like James would prescribe for the church to do. And this is a part of what we do. We pray for each other. We pray for supernatural works in people's lives so that the glory of God might be on display. I don't know that we believe that that happens. I, I, I'm not guilting you if you're not here tonight. You have young kids. It's tough. That's okay. But hardly anybody comes to these prayer nights. And a big reason why is we just don't really see why. 
Why do we need to come together and pray for God to move supernaturally? Because we are more concerned, let's pray for things we know doctors can already do, or things that can, there's always an answer for. But why don't we pray for God's supernatural power to show up in a way and heal people and bring restoration and equip our ministries and supply them in a great way? God has that kind of authority. This power that we see taking place in the New Testament still exists today. I believe that the apostolic gift is still alive. Now, to be clear, while I believe the gift of people being sent out and understanding ministry is alive today, I've never met a person who calls themselves apostle who wasn't sketch. In fact, the longer the title, the more sketchy their doctrine is. But what God wants to do in and through us, Jesus says, is more powerful than even what we saw Jesus do. And so here's this text, and it's descriptive of, of what happened when Jesus sent the disciples out. And it's not the exact same for us, but we are called by God in the same way. And so my application to you is literally to live out in some way the things that we saw in them. Number one, you are not on your own. You're not on your own. Spend time with Jesus and go out two by two. Impart that in your lives and do the work of Jesus. Number two, you have authority. If you're a believer, you have the authority of the Holy Spirit. It's derived from God, so make sure you're not trusting in what's here, but you're listening to him. But you have authority. Number three, embrace simplicity. Embrace simplicity. Be content. Be free to be used by God. Number four, accept hospitality. If you really are embracing simplicity, then you're constantly going to need or at least benefit from the hospitality and generosity of other people and accept it. God doesn't want you to do it in a way that you get all the credit. Accept it. I'm so blessed by our church and the hospitality here. Number five, prepare for rejection. Just be ready. It's going to happen. If you've never experienced rejection for Christ, I don't know that you're living for Christ. Prepare for it. Number six, do the work of the one who sends you. I was gonna say do work, son, but I didn't think this audience would fully get that. Do the work of the one who sends you. And number seven, and I think this is implied in the gospel of Mark, but certainly the other gospel writers capture this better. Remember who you are in Christ. That's what combats fear. Listen to what Matthew says that Jesus says after he talks about the persecution. Matthew 10, 26. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you who are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. 
Jesus is saying the real fear is the judgment of God. And for believers, by God's grace, we stand in that judgment, righteous, accepted, or his. And that is what should fuel your mission. For me, this is always attention. I'm always trying to think, okay, how, how is God leading us? What is God calling us to do? And I know he wants to do great things. And, and I'll just be honest with you, it can be challenging sometimes. When I think about our church specifically, you know, I think about our campus and like we want to connect people more. Like eventually we've got to do some work to this campus to build a connecting commons, which is like a central place where people can hang out and come in through one central way, like, so it's not so confusing. There's just so much that enables us to do, but it's not free, and we really would like to renovate our gym to do some outreach, more ministry, more family ministry, all those things. That costs money, and then you just have to upkeep the facility. And it's like, all that is just there with constant, you know, culture that we live in, which is just changing, making life and business and everything more expensive, and then the community is much continually less and less churched and young Christian families who, you know, a lot of our senior adults who have been faithful and the backbone of this church, I mean, the Lord is taking them home every year. And so then how do you then go to young families who just aren't, and you know, hopefully all y'all, but probably not all y'all, who just aren't committed to the local church. Like they just don't understand the Bible and what it talks about the local church. And so they're not here that much. They don't give that much. They don't serve that much. It's just consumeristic. So how do we do all that? And, and, and beyond that, we as a church really believe, hey, we don't just wanna like be a bigger church. Like we wanna give a ton of money away. Like we wanna plant churches. We wanna fund missionaries. We wanna help the poor. Like we wanna do all those things. How do I do that? And when I think about it, I'll just be honest with you, I don't know. And right now, because of our culture and because of COVID, I know less than I've ever known. And it could be troubling. And I'm constantly worried about what people think about me and people leave the church and they say things and it could be just, it could be hard to sleep at night sometimes. And I'm just sharing me. I know that you have similar things in your life and the calling and the, the, how you wanna live. But something that has just resonated with me, and I hope it resonates with you. Ever since I just fully grasped this text, and it's helped me to have joy in the challenges, and it's helped me to stay grounded in the victories, is what Jesus says in Luke 10, when the disciples come back. Verse 17, the 72, so there's 72 that have went out, returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He's, they're like, we're awesome. Look what we're doing. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. He says, man, I see you doing great things for me. And then he says this, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus says, don't find your joy in what you do for me. Find your joy 
in what I have done for you. And that you are mine. And whether you're in the highs or the lows, nothing changes that. That is what fuels a life of service for Christ. And I pray you know that. I pray you know the joy that comes from being his. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to be reminded this morning of what you have done for us, what you have declared over us, and what you have promised us, that we are yours for eternity. And in light of that, help the life we live in the flesh to no longer be lived in the flesh, but to be lived by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Help people in this room to know that's their worth and to live in response. In Jesus' name, amen.